The Bible reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was in duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked to me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. We are um, <clears throat> embarking today on a, a new series, which I hope um, will direct your hearts and minds and prepare you uh, for Christmas. And I suppose you could say it's a bit of an Advent series, although I realize typically Advent hasn't started yet, but we're just getting ahead early, um, and we're going to uh, enjoy all that God has for us in these uh, verses. Uh, and so over the next few weeks now, in the run-up to Christmas, and including our Christmas service on the 18th, we're going to be looking at little sections from uh, Luke's uh, Gospel, Luke chapter 1, and a bit of Luke chapter 2 as well, and the build-up, the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to look at these verses that Marion's just read for us this morning and examine together uh, the message of hope. And in Luke chapter 1, really, I suppose one of the big ideas could be that, that hope is here, that we have a reason for hope, and that is in the life of, of, of Jesus. And, and uh, what Luke is doing throughout this whole section and the entire work is presenting eyewitness accounts of these amazing and extraordinary events. Um, so as far as he's concerned, uh, even though these things are not normal, uh, these don't happen every day, um, they're, they're very, very rare indeed, um, he, these actually happened. He's, he's interviewed the people who saw this, who were there at the time, and he's put this 
uh, compendium together called the Gospel of Luke. And what we're seeing here and what we're going to be thinking about today is that if you want to have hope, if you want to have hope, there are four things I think Luke is pointing us to uh, in this text. If you want to have hope, first of all, you pursue hope. Second of all, you understand hope. Thirdly, you believe hope. And fourthly and finally, you celebrate hope. And that will just uh, help us uh, navigate this first section together, those four headings. Um, first of all, if you want to understand, if you want to have hope, rather you have to pursue hope. The first in this uh, narrative to hear that hope is here were a couple called Zachariah and Elizabeth. Um, they are two individuals who were living in hope. They were pursuing hope. Um, we see in verse 5, it says, In the days of, of Herod, king of Judea, Herod, otherwise known as Herod the Great, uh, was, a, was a Jewish king. He was kind of a puppet, really, uh, under the authority of the Roman, uh, Roman rule, the Roman Empire. And yet he had sort of limited reign, I suppose, in Palestine, parts of Palestine in those days. Uh, and it says there that Zechariah um, was a priest, uh, in verse 5, a priest from the division of Abijah. And his wife, as well, was, it says, from the line of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And so both of them are from a sort of priestly line, priestly stock, so to speak. Aaron was, I suppose, the, uh, the, the, the first priest um, that was elected by God to, to do that ministry. Uh, and, and as we can see in, in, in Luke's brief description, these two individuals are outstanding examples of, of godliness and faith. It says in verse 6, for example, they were both uh, righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly, it says, in all his commands and his statutes. We might say they were godly people. Um, right, righteous before God means being righteous in God's eyes. It means that God, when he looked at them, he was pleased with them. I mean, when he looked at them, uh, he considered them right with him. They were righteous before God, but also it says they were walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes. So, they were right in God's eyes, but also when other people looked at them, they thought these were people who were going after God. They could see they were living out their faith blamelessly. Uh, what they believed and how they lived added up. And that's what they were like. They were renowned. They were walking blamelessly before God. What, what great examples of, of godly living. But then we get to verse 7. As wonderful as this couple was, it begins, but... And that but is very instructive in the story that unfolds. They were favored in God's eyes. They were well regarded by the people. But, it says, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both of them were advanced in years. Uh, today, we wouldn't really use that term barren. Uh, we'd probably use infertility or subfertility or had fertility struggles or something like that. Presumably, the pair of them were past the reproductive age and for whatever reason, uh, over the years, it had never really worked out for them as a couple. And today, you know, we have sophisticated medicine and techniques. We would send someone for scans and blood tests, go and see the specialists, you know, consider IVF and other assisted fertility. But then their only option was to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying for a child month after month, year after year, disappointment, discouragement, and eventually accepting the sad truth that it's just not going to work out for us. Added to that, in that culture, in those days, to be childless was considered to be very shameful in society. 
because to be childless was, was, was thought to be part of God's curse, you know, his displeasure. If you're infertile, you must have sinned. You must have annoyed God or upset him somehow. He, you brought that curse onto yourself. And so with childlessness came a great and deep sense of shame. But Luke wants to show us in these first three verses of this section that that is not the case. These were righteous people who were right before God and right in the eyes of other people. So I suppose maybe then the question this, this might set up for you is this. How, how can someone be righteous in the eyes of God and yet not blessed? How does that work out? You know, in other words, how, how can God favor someone and yet withhold blessing? Is there, is there indeed a link between righteousness before God and the blessing from God? Can, can a person who pursues hope, as I'm suggesting, expect to receive blessing from God at some point? I think there's two ways that we can answer that. I think probably um, the first way I, I would describe is the super, superstitious answer. And a superstitious answer or a superstitious mindset might say, well, they're good people. And, and they've been living good lives. And they've been following religious practices. And so, therefore, such a godly pair should expect to be blessed. They've earned it. They, they've impressed God somehow or other by their religious activities. They've satisfied some sort of requirements of his. And so, therefore, they, they, they're owed it. Similar in some ways to putting a coin in the machine and out comes a bar of chocolate. You put your money, you expect something back. That's kind of what I'd describe as the superstitious answer. But it's not at all the religion of the Bible. It's not at all the religion called Christianity. Because the second answer we can give to this idea of being righteous but yet not blessed, uh, we find in the Bible, and, and the Bible answer is that we don't earn God's favor by good works, by doing good things. We do good works because he's already given us his favor. The order is critical, so easily forgotten or mistaken. The Bible tells us that God shows us his grace, his love, his forgiveness to us first. He gives us Jesus who died and rose in our place. And then we, in turn, when we receive that and understand that through faith, we live for him as a response. Right? We seek to, to live out the lives that please him, righteous living, following his commands, honoring him in every area of our lives. So we don't do it to earn blessing. We do it because we have been blessed. And the order is critical. Let me give you some practical steer then about how this might play out for us. First of all, let me encourage you. Um, if you are earnestly living a righteous life, okay, we're not talking about being perfect, but we're talking about earnestly living a righteous life, submitting all to God, honoring him in every aspect of your life. If you're doing that and yet you are seeing no breakthrough in areas that you want to see breakthrough, my encouragement is to keep pursuing hope. Because you need to hear you're not being punished. 
You're not being denied joy by a joyless God. He has his reasons, but he is pleased with you. So keep pressing in, keep living for God, keep praying, keep, keep trying to know him and enjoy him and experience him for him alone. Keep pursuing hope. That's my encouragement. But also I think on the other side of the coin there is a challenge, there is even a warning here. If you're living an unrighteous life, if your life is out of step with his will for your life, if, if, if there are patterns of sinful behavior in your life, you know, some of the m- more obvious ones, stealing, sexual immorality, lying, cheating, anger, gossip, all this stuff, if that stuff is harbored up in your life, Or if there are other areas of your life that you have declared are off limits to God, you can come this far, God, but no further. If that's you, then you cannot expect the blessing and favor of God in your life. You see, the first step to having hope is pursuing hope. And we do that by living a righteous life that is pleasing to God. First point, pursue hope. Second thing then we do in order to have hope, not only pursue it, but we are trying to understand it. It's essential that we understand the message that brings us hope. Um, Otherwise, it's just a vague feeling, isn't it? It's a Christmassy sensation, but that's pretty much it. That's not real hope. And now we see in in, in the text then the the message of hope starts to break out. It says in verse 8, while he was serving as a priest before God, his division was on duty and uh, he was... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Uh, his, his, his priestly division would have attended the temple twice a year for one week at a time. And they would have uh, been about the business of the temple work of organizing worship, preparing sacrifices, all the rest of it. There would have been a whole load of people in his division, in Zachariah's division. But as we've just sort of read there in verse 9, Zechariah here in this situation was chosen by Lot. Lot, I suppose, is like a, probably like a, a bunch of sticks, you know, where everybody would select a stick and the one with the shortest stick, for example, would be the, cho- the chosen one. There's other methods, but that's generally what we're talking about. It's like throwing a dice or something along those lines. Um, he was chosen, and he was chosen to enter the temple and burn the incense. And that is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It is so rare. And he was chosen to go and offer incense in the temple, one of the highest honors a priest could have. And so there he is, offering incense up to God on behalf of the people of Israel. It says in verse 10, there's a whole bunch of worshipers and probably some pilgrims as well, gathering outside, praying. And what they were doing was praying on behalf or, or, or about the priest, I suppose. And they were, they, were, they were waiting for that priest, after he's offered the incense, to come back out from the presence of God and bless the people. And so that was their custom. That was what they were doing there at that time. And it says there in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Or the, the, yeah, the, the altar of incense. And it says in verse 12 that he was troubled. That is, Zechariah was troubled. He was distressed. Great fear fell upon him. 
I mean, an angel, the word angel means messenger, right? It's, it's somebody, or rather a chosen sort of heavenly being, who carries the words of God to people. Effectively, he carries the presence of God to people. And it is a terrifying thing. Every time an angel appears in Scripture, or most of the time an angel appears in Scripture, unless they're in sort of disguise, and it does happen, um, it is a terrifying thing because this being has quite literally come from the presence of God and is standing before a normal person like you or I. You would be melting on the floor in fear. Terrifying experience. Presence of God so thick, so powerful, so fearsome. And his first words to Zechariah, who's troubled, says, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. God's heard your prayer. What was the prayer that God heard that the angel came to talk about? We don't actually know what the prayer was. Was it the prayer for a child? Prayers in the past for a child? Was it something more national? The prayer for the salvation of the people of Israel? Because that's what he would have been doing when he was offering incense to God. He was praying for the the people. And many people in that day and age, uh, many Jewish people were waiting and hungering and, and desiring the appearance of God to come and redeem his people. It was in the promises from the prophets. And everybody was looking forward to it. And so as he offered incense, he was saying prayers for the nations. Maybe this was the prayer the angel came to answer. But either way, The angel announced, God has heard your prayer. Hope is here. Maybe it was both prayers. Prayer for a child and the prayer for a nation. Because actually they're both the same. And here's the message he gave. We can see this through 13 to 17. In summary, uh, the message of the angel said to uh, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. He's going to be called John. And that boy will grow up to be great before the Lord, highly regarded and very special in the sight of God. And he is going to give you so much joy. And he is going to be set apart for special purposes of God. He is going to have a unique calling. He is going to play an unrepeatable role in the redemption of my people. He's going to be one of a kind. Even this prohibition against wine and Strong drink is not necessarily because those things are sinful in and of themselves. But typically powerfully anointed Old Testament figures um, would, would, would uh, be, you know, teetotal, would put those things away so they could be completely devoted to God. And we see that in the life of Samson, for example, uh, and, and others as well. Instead, he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it said, from the womb. He was going to exercise a powerful ministry in the spirit of Elijah. And he will achieve the reconciliation of hearts and minds of those who are at war with one another, within families especially. He's going to achieve the restoration of those who are disobedient to make them obedient to God. He is going to prepare a people for the Lord. Hope is here. What a promise. Magnificent. And that's how God brought hope into the world. Through angels and miraculous babies and these stupendous fillings of the Holy Spirit to achieve incredible, 
ministry. And these events, as I said at the start, Luke holds as true. They actually happened, and yet they are totally extraordinary. They're completely outside of our normal, our usual experience about how things work. But I think that's the point with all of this. I think hope is truly hope-filled when it comes to us from outside. Right? When, it, when it's something completely different from our lived experience. There's something completely other. One of the commentators on this particular passage wrote, through this message from the angel, another world begins to break into this one. It's another world. It's a hope from somewhere else. That's why it fills us with hope. And do you know what that means for us then as we're thinking about hope as a, as a church? It means that we cannot and do not need to rely on what we see and hear in this world as the source of our hope. Because hope is entirely other. It is entirely different from our lived experiences. It is, it is much needed. Because we, we, we know that there is little to inspire hope in this world. In general. For example, let's take politics as a case in point. That is a failed source of hope. Yes, it is necessary. Yes, it is important. Yes, we need Christians involved in everyday politics in whichever country or sphere it is. But taking a wide angle and looking at politics and looking at organization of countries and societies, peace has been fitful. It has been sporadic throughout history. In fact, most societies that I can think of anyway are defined and shaped more by war and conquest than by peace and flourishing. And our own is a prime example of that. It's a failed source of hope. Technology, we could probably think of, again, is another failed source of hope. Is initially, technology is designed to help us to make our lives easier, but it seems to be with the progress of technology... In, in all of its forms, it's starting to turn against us. It's starting to become a God that controls us and dictates and shapes us rather than something that inspires hope. Just look at the impact of social media, for example. And finally, maybe even ecology and what the, our world. You know, we could look at our planet and think, well, this is a source of hope. And yet with emissions as they are and global warming and rising sea levels and you know, natural disasters occurring more and more frequently... Even the best efforts of COP27 will fall short. We won't satisfy everybody. It is a failed source of hope. But when we understand hope, here we start to learn that God enters our world. He speaks words that we can understand. He says to us, hope is here. And first John came to announce that hope is coming. And then the Son, Jesus himself, came to secure that hope, to offer that hope at great cost to himself. If you want to have hope, number two, you have to understand what that hope is. Thirdly, then, if you want to have hope, we need to believe that hope, believe that message. Zachariah couldn't believe it. Right? In fact, he doubted. 
Um, you can see this, for example, in verse uh, 18 through to 23. The angel has just delivered this monumental message, and Zechariah's first response to the angel is, how shall I know this? Or in another translation of the Bible, it says, how can I be sure of this? He's heard the message, but he just doesn't know if it's true. And he's asking for a sign. How can I know this is going to work out? How, how, how are you going to convince me, he says to the angel. I want to confirm that you've got it right. And on one level, I think that's very understandable. Because he goes on to say straight away in verse 18, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And we get that, don't we? Um, he's effectively saying, I'm just looking at the metrics here. I'm just trying to be rational, Gabriel. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be practical here. I, I appreciate you coming to share this with me. I really do, and it's a wonderful message. But the reality is, it's not like that in my life, Gabriel. It's not likely to happen, is it? I mean, look at me. See how old I am. And we get it, don't we? Because the background here is years and years of trying and failing, hopes rising and falling. And so the chances, humanly speaking, are just not good. In fact, they're highly improbable. But the angel replies and doesn't say, oh, you know what, you're right, I'll give you a sign, we'll get this ironed out. He says, don't you know who I am? I am Gabriel. He says, I stand in the presence of God. I've just come from there to speak these words to you, the gospel. You don't get it, do you? Well, here is your sign, says Gabriel. Here is the proof that this will work exactly as I have just said it to you. In verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things have taken place. There's your sign. You know, he's effectively saying, you don't believe God's words, so you shall lose your own words. You didn't listen to his speech, so we won't listen to your speech. Zacharias, he failed to believe hope. But remember for a second that Zechariah and Elizabeth, we saw this at the beginning, they were righteous before God. Okay? They, were, they were good people. They had faith. So what we're not talking about here is total unbelief. But just on this point, on this promise, this astounding revelation, he starts to tip towards unbelief. He doubted, and doubt was becoming the precursor to unbelief. These events were staggering, the message was breathtaking, the angels, the miracles, God's calling on the boy, his future achievements, this simply did not fit into Zachariah's framework of how things should be and what were possible. He just couldn't compute. The thing that had been said to him would not fit into his, his, his framework. Uh, I think many people who... Who, who listen to the, the truth claims of the Christian faith, of, of the Bible, have a similar experience, right? They, they struggle to accept or believe the message. It's not that they can't sort of hear it and understand it on one level, but it just doesn't fit into their understanding of how things should be and, and, and their framework. We all have a framework, by the way. I don't know if you knew this about yourself. You do. We all have a way, and so do you, of, of, of assessing and dealing with truth claims. 
um, whether it's something small like uh, getting a new deal on your car insurance and whether to, to sort of decide to take that or not, or through to the weighty questions of the universe, like why am I here? And, and, and what's the purpose of life? All of those things you will assess subconsciously through your framework. I do it, you do it. What is that framework? It is a set of filters and a way that you sort of handle and grapple truth claims, how you see truth, how you see reality. It's kind of like a set of glasses that you might put on to help you see the world and understand it. That's the framework. And those glasses, or I suppose that framework is shaped by your experiences, um, by your expectations, by what you think is possible, by your assumptions, uh, by your culture. All of these things will speak into that framework. We all have it. And so when you and I are confronted with massive truth claims, as Zachariah was here, you have one of two options. The first option is that you can adjust, adjust the truth to fit your framework. Or the second option is that you can adjust your framework to accept the truth. Something has to give. And so are you going to deconstruct the truth to fit your framework, or are you going to rebuild your framework to accept this truth? Zachariah was trying option one. He couldn't accept it. He couldn't fit it into his into his framework because the truth claims he was hearing uh, were not fitting into his pre-existing understanding of how things should be. Let me just emphasize that it is important for you to know and understand your own framework. You do have one. We all do. But it's important you have knowledge of it that you can see what it is doing and how it shapes your acceptance of truth, your handling of truth claims. And as you understand that a little more, you might find that you're not too dissimilar from Zachariah. Because of your framework, you'll hold on to bits that you like, things that work for you, that come from God. But you will likewise filter out the bits you don't like. They're too hard to receive, or you just dismiss it. It doesn't work for you. That's option one, isn't it? It's adjusting the truth to fit your framework. And it's a very popular way of thinking. Very popular. And that might be fine for you. You can do that if you want. But let me be frank. That will do you a disservice, ultimately. Because the claim that we're seeing here the claim of the angel and of the Bible is that only God's entire truth, only his good news, can actually help you. It's the totality of this truth. It's the completeness. It's the full story. Only that can give you hope, a reason for hope. So if you find yourself like Zachariah taking bits and pieces and throwing the rest away, that will ultimately not give you hope. It won't help you. In this series that we're going to be processing over the next four or five weeks, yes, I want, I want us together to examine the claims from the Bible. I want you to see the reason for hope. 
Yes, do that. But also, I want us to examine our framework. I want you to examine your framework. Everybody is free to doubt and test the claims of the Christian faith. That's up to them. But are you ready to doubt and test your doubt? Yes, we should analyze the truth, but are you willing to analyze your analysis? Because that is one of the big factors between you and receiving hope, believing hope. Fourthly, and finally then, celebrate hope. If you want to receive hope, when you see it, celebrate it. Verses 24 and 25. Hope is here, and it starts to break through even in this narrative. You know, the promises start to bud like a flower. They start to open up in spring. And it says here in verse 24, after these days, when all this stuff took place, his wife Elizabeth conceived the stuff started to become true. Hope is here. And it says that she uh, hid herself for five months. She went into seclusion. We're not exactly sure why that is, uh, what the purpose of that was. The text doesn't tell us straight away. I think most likely is that she chose to voluntarily set herself aside because she realized that she is carrying a special child, a very special child indeed. And as a devout woman who is righteous in the eyes of God, she would take herself away, I think, to worship, to pray, to prepare. You know, it says here in verse 25, um, this is what she said during these days. This is what the Lord has done for me. When he looked on me, and when he lifted my shame, and when he has shown favor to me. I think that was her cry that was her prayer that was her song throughout this whole time he has shown his favor to me and she's thinking to herself if this has happened already then surely the rest will follow she didn't even yet have a baby but she's already full of faith because he who began a good work in me will carry it on to the day of completion she's expecting that all this stuff will work out because he said it and it started. So if you're here this morning and you can describe yourself as holding on to hope, somehow or other, holding on to hope, let me end with some encouragement because I want to help you build that hope, strengthen that hope. Maybe you are holding on to hope in a certain life situation you're going through. You're asking for some sort of personal breakthrough, some sort of shift in your life or in the life of a loved one that you know that only God can do. That's what you want. That's what you're praying for. You've been crying out to God, but yet you do not see him move hearts and minds and bodies if that's you, if you can sort of uh, chime with any of that, I want to encourage you. When you cry out to God, he knows. He knows. Verse 13, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. 
You know, when you pray in faith and in the name of Jesus, there are only three options about what God will do in response to that. We know he hears. So when you pray in the name of Jesus and in faith in his power and what he can do, first option is God will say yes immediately. And he will answer that prayer. That's what we want all the time, isn't it? The second option is that God will say yes eventually. And he will answer it, but you are being required to keep hoping, keep faith, keep asking. The third option is that God will say no, but he says no because I've got something better for you. You don't see it right now, but I've got something more amazing, more wonderful, another access to my heart that I want you to receive. And so if that is you and you're holding on to hope in a life situation, my encouragement is keep pressing in. He knows. Maybe uh, you're sharing with me, holding on to hope regarding our church. And you hope that it will continue to grow and influence and, and favor. And you share with, with me a, a vision of things to come. And you're holding on to hope. And yet you realize that, that church growth and church planting and all the rest of it can be slow. It can be discouraging. It can be confusing. It is very hard. Let me encourage you that when you see the green shoots of God's grace, that you celebrate hope. That we as a church celebrate hope. Okay, when we see uh, God's grace through baptisms, through additions to the church, through, through serving moments, through relational connection and depth, when we see these things starting to bud from the ground, we say hope is here. It just reminds us when we celebrate hope that if he has already begun it, then surely the rest will follow. And thirdly and finally, maybe you're holding on to hope about the grand storyline of God, this stuff that you're learning about God. You're holding on to that hope. You need that stuff to be true, that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he has promised to do, that he has entered this world, that he has brought salvation and hope, that he has poured out his favor on his people. And when you, when you hear these stories and, and, and you, you delve into the narrative, you're just saying to yourself, I need this to be true. Well, hope is here. Because as we go through these texts over the next few weeks and even perhaps today, you will see that in these eyewitness accounts, he has already started it. And therefore, surely the rest will follow. Surely Jesus who came and who died and who rose, surely he will come again to complete what he began. And so if that's you, if you're holding on to that hope, as you celebrate that hope, let's enjoy it. Let's build our lives on it and let's just learn to trust more and more that he who began that good work will carry it through to completion. Hope is here. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray.